Good afternoon, everybody. Happy Welcome birthday. to the Cato Institute's briefing entitled New Incentives from Federal Transportation Funding. I am Peter Russo, Director of Congressional Affairs at Cato, and I'm very pleased to host today's event. Uh, the law authorizing funding for federal highway and transit programs expires on May 31st, and Congress is currently debating, one, where the money will come from and to replenish the depleting highway trust fund, and two, where it should be spent. But a third question is even more important. What are the incentives created by federal transportation spending, and how can they be improved to provide Americans with a better overall system? Almost 60 years ago, in 1956, the National Interstate and Defense Highways Act was enacted, and until relatively recently, was able to avoid a shortage of funds by a simple measure. It didn't spend more than was collected in gas taxes. <clears throat> that changed in 2008, when tax revenues declined due to the financial crisis, but Congress continued to spend as if the revenues were growing. Since then, Congress has, been, has had to replenish the trust fund with billions of dollars in general funds while diverting about 25% of gas tax revenues to non-highway projects. This makes little sense, especially since there are numerous federal rules like Davis-Bacon and Buy America-style provisions that can substantially increase the costs of bridge and highway maintenance and repair. But those only explain part of the ballooning costs we've seen in recent history. Cato has long supported devolution, the idea that taxpayers and transportation users would be better off if federal highway spending, fuel taxes, and related regulations were eliminated. State and local governments are perfectly capable of handling transportation without federal intervention, and they certainly should pay for their own light rail, roadside beautification, and bike path projects. States should move toward market pricing for transportation usage and expand the private sector's role in the funding and operation of highways. However, since that is unlikely to occur in the current political environment, our task is to recommend policies that do the least harm and encourage transition to a faster, cleaner, and safer transportation system. To do that, it is important to understand the effects that both spending and regulation have on the existing regime and the potential effects they will have on the future. Furthermore, it would be a mistake for Congress to stand in the way of new advances in automated vehicle technology. Though flying cars and jetpacks may still be out of reach, the near future is no longer in the realm of science fiction or in the minds of crank futurists. The posture that, that Congress should adopt will influence the inevitable rollout of these new technologies and can either help or hinder it. Congress should be future-oriented and forward-looking rather than maintaining old paradigms. Cato, the Reason Foundation, and the Competitive Enterprise Institute have all published a number of papers and articles on these issues, copies of many of which can be found on the table as you came in. But today our speakers will discuss these topics and present new information based on their most recent research. So allow me to introduce them. Oregonian Randall O'Toole is a Cato Institute senior fellow working on urban growth, public land, and transportation issues. He is the author of many books, the latest of which is called American Nightmare, How Government Undermines the Dream of Home Ownership. He's also the author of numerous Cato papers and has written for Regulation Magazine, as well as contributed op-eds and articles for many national journals and newspapers. O'Toole travels extensively and has spoken about free market environmental issues in dozens of cities around the country. O'Toole was educated in forestry at Oregon State University and in economics at the University of Oregon. Baruch Feigenbaum is a policy analyst at Reason Foundation, a nonprofit think tank advancing free minds and free markets. He specializes in transportation policy at the federal, state, and local levels. Prior to joining Reason, Feigenbaum handled transportation issues on Capitol Hill for Georgia Representative Lynn Westmoreland. He earned his master's degree in city and regional planning with a concentration in transportation 
from his Georgia Institute of Technology. Mark Scribner is a research fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on transportation, land use, and telecommunications policy issues. He has appeared on Fox Business and also written for numerous publications, including USA Today, The Washington Post, Forbes, and National Review. His work has been cited by CNN, Bloomberg, BBC, C-SPAN, and other print, television, and radio outlets. Prior to joining CEI, Scribner worked in the Congress Department at Federal News Service. He received his undergraduate degree in economics and philosophy from George Washington University. So the way this will work is each will speak in turn for about 10 to 12 minutes, after which we'll open it up for Q&A. So please welcome Randall O'Toole. All right, well, <clears throat> Peter kind of stole my thunder here because he announced to you the questions everybody's asking about reauthorization. Where's the money going to come from, and how are you going to spend it? And as Peter suggested, the real question you ought to be asking is, what kind of incentives are created by federal funding? When you decide what kind of incentives you want to create, I think it will help answer the first two questions, which is where the money should come from and where it should go. Uh, uh, you can get an idea of some of the perverse incentives uh, that are created by federal transportation funding by looking at the Purple Line light rail proposal in Maryland or any light rail proposal in the country. Light rail costs have just exploded. Uh, we can look and see uh, in 1981, San Diego, without any federal funding, spent, uh, after adjusting for inflation, $17 million a mile building a light rail line. In the 1980s, several other cities with federal funding spent about $25 million a mile building light rail lines. So the Davis-Bacon, Buy America, and stuff like that uh, made a difference of this much in price. Since then, Congress has created an, in 1991 what I call an open bucket, the New Starts Fund, a giant bucket of money, and the cities that, that develop the most expensive rail proposals get the most money. And as a result, rail construction costs have just exploded. Uh, the current average light rail cost of a project that's now underway is $198 million a mile, uh, well over 10 times what uh, San Diego spent in 1981. So uh, we've got this explosion of costs, and that's as a result of perverse federal incentives. Just uh, uh, as a point of reference, uh, typical urban freeways cost about $2.5 million a lane mile, $3 million a lane mile. Uh, Honolulu built what was considered to be one of the most expensive urban freeways uh, that cost about $20 million a lane mile. Probably the most expensive freeway ever built was the Boston Big Dig at $90 million a lane mile. The Purple Line light rail uh, is actually <coughs> Uh, $150 million a mile, and the average light rail is $198 million a mile. Now, these high costs for rail might be worth it if rail were carrying a lot more people than a lane mile of roads, but actually it turns out uh, light rail on average carries only about a third as many people as a lane mile of urban freeway. Heavy rail, like the Washington metro system, carries a little bit less than one lane worth of freeway, cost about $300 million a mile on average to build. So we have something that's far more expensive than highways and far less productive. <clears throat> uh, in addition, the costs of 
I said the current cost of, of uh, rail projects is $198 million a mile for light rail. Uh, that's the cost as, be, as is projected today. In actuality, almost every rail project goes way over budget, uh, an average of about 50% over budget. And you can see these are in chronological order, different rail projects. Only one project didn't go over budget. These projects were all evaluated by the Federal Transit Administration. This is, these are their numbers. And you can see the, over, the amount of over-budgeted projects in, in recent years uh, is not significantly different from in older years. So what's going on is that the people who are planning these projects lowball the cost estimates so they can sell them locally so that they can then get the federal funds. And once they get federal funds, then they get, uh, uh, get real and come up with more realistic numbers, and the numbers always go up. And also, uh, in another example of what is kindly called optimism bias, but is more cynically called strategic misrepresentation, they almost always overestimate ridership. Um, uh, these are the historic overestimates, and you can see, again, they're in chronological order. So the ones down here are not significantly better than the ones up here. There's a few more that actually underestimated ridership. But it's not very many. It's what, about five out of about 50 projects, uh, an average of 70% cost overestimates. Now, another problem with federal capital funding for transit is that there's a huge disparity in how much money goes to different urban areas. Uh, I think it would be fair to have money be proportional to transit ridership. It wouldn't, you wouldn't want it proportional po to population because the transit ridership in some areas is much higher than in other areas per, per capita transit ridership. For example, in Houston, the average person rides transit, you know, a couple times a year, uh, and in, in uh, 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 New York City, it's 100 times a year. So it would probably be fairest to have transit funding be proportional to ridership. Well, it turns out federal transit funding by urban area, and it's hard to read these names, but that's Salt Lake City, that's Milwaukee at the bottom, ranges from $2.17 per rider to $0.26 cents per rider for Milwaukee. So that's an eight-fold difference. And the way to get, more to get more federal dollars is to build rail. Uh, Salt, Lake, Salt Lake City, Dallas, Norfolk, other cities are building ex wildly expensive, inappropriately expensive rail projects because they're not attracting any new riders. They're just transferring people from buses to trains. Uh, and in order to get these federal dollars. And that this puts other cities under pressure to build their own rail projects so that they can get federal dollars. It doesn't do any good for transit riders. Uh, it's just a way of getting money out of the federal government. Now, it turns out uh, one group of cities that gets hurt by this policy is cities that already had rail. In 1966, only eight American cities still had rail transit. Uh, and those cities pretty much are built out. They don't need to build a lot more. And so they're uh, uh, running their rail systems. And it turns out they get the least amount of money. Uh, New York especially is hurt by this. If, if funds were distributed according to transit riders, New York would get more than half a billion dollars a year, more than it's getting today. Uh, as, as opposed to uh, other cities. Um, another way to get a lot of money out of the federal government is to have 
a member of your congressional delegation on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. It really helps if that member is a Democrat. In the 111th Congress, uh, states that had Democrats on the House TNI Committee uh, earned $120 million more than they would have uh, if there hadn't been a Democrat. By the 114th or 13th Congress, it was $160 million a year. It doesn't help so much to have a Republican on the committee. In fact, in the 111th Congress, it actually hurt. You got less money than if you didn't have anybody on the committee. Uh, and they did a little better in the 112th and 113th Congresses, but you can see the Democrats are still outgunning the Republicans three to one uh, in terms of dollars. So these are highly politicized dollars. Uh, they're dollars that are uh, going to, uh, uh, to cities in a very inequitable fashion, and uh, it's because the federal government has created these incentives to uh, build new projects and neglect the existing projects. Now, some of you may remember in 2009, there was a crash that killed nine people. You remember last January, there was smoke in the tunnels. A woman died uh, in the Washington metro system. This is because politicians fund new projects. They don't fund maintenance. And all of the problems we see with the Washington metro system are due to a lack of maintenance. We've got billions of dollars that could be fixing that. But instead, we're building the silver line, and people want to build the purple line and neglect the maintenance of the existing systems. So we're going to end up with more rail transit systems that we can't afford to maintain. The Federal Transit Administration says there's a, as of 2010, there was a $59 billion maintenance backlog of uh, uh, rail systems across the country. And it's only grown since then because they've been spending money on building new, and they haven't been spending money on ma maintaining. And so it's been, the backlog has been getting better, bigger and bigger. The purple line is an example of that. Uh, they say, oh, we need the purple line to relieve congestion. Here's a picture. Oh, we've got this terribly congested street, and the purple line is zipping right by. Well, the truth is the purple line is going to go at less than 15 and a half miles an hour. So really, the people in those cars are going to get there faster than the people riding the purple line. In fact, that bicyclist is going to get there faster uh, than the people riding the train if that bicyclist is anything like me because I can ride faster than 15 and a half miles an hour from Bethesda to New Carrollton. Uh, the Purple Line is not going to relieve congestion according to data in the Environmental Impact Statement. It's going to add 36,000 hours of wasted congestion a day because of crossings, because it's going to occupy space that uh, uh, cars now use, and so on. The Red Line in, in Baltimore is also going to increase congestion, and they're both also going to waste energy. They're going to use more energy than all the cars they take off the road. So the, the environmental benefits are nil. Uh, and Washington, D.C. isn't the only place that's building new rail when it should be maintaining its systems. Uh, Boston has a $3 billion maintenance backlog. They should be spending $470 million on maintenance a year just to keep the backlog from growing. Instead, their maintenance budget this year is less than $100 million. And instead of maintaining the system they've got, they're building a new line. It's an extension of the Green Line to Medford. Uh, when they first started planning it, it was supposed to cost $400 million. It's now costing $2 billion. Uh, they broke ground in December. They're going to spend $2 billion that ought to be spent on maintenance, and instead they're building this ridiculous new line. This is uh, Peter Rogoff. He the, was the administrator of the Federal Transit Administration. He's now Deputy Secretary of Transportation in charge of policy. He specifically says, 
we should not be building new rail transit systems in communities that can't afford to maintain what they've got. He has specifically said, bus, paint is cheaper than trains. We should be painting buses special colors and running the buses down corridors and attracting new riders. He said you can attract as many new riders that way as you can by building an expensive train, but too many communities aren't considering that option. Despite that, uh, as, as administrator of the FTA, he passed out billions of dollars because that's what Congress told him to do. Uh, buses, uh, I think, are great, but they're also a, another great example of perverse incentives. If you want to increase your bus service, the federal government will buy, will pay 80% of the cost of a new diesel bus. But if you want to have a clean bus, a hybrid bus, or a, a, a natural gas-powered bus, the federal government will pay 90% of the cost. That means that for the, 10 per, for the percentage that you pay as a local transit agency, you can spend twice as much on a bus. And guess what? Clean buses cost almost exactly twice as much as diesel buses. So the bus industry has figured this out. They're charging twice as much. I'm sure they're making enormous profits from that extra amount. But what's happening is instead of getting two buses out there for the price of one, we're getting one bus out there, which means we're getting poorer bus service for transit riders, and oh yeah, they're clean buses, but that cleanliness comes at a huge cost. Uh, the McKinsey says that we can reduce our greenhouse gases to meet our uh, Kyoto targets by spending on projects that cost less than $50 a ton of greenhouse gas abated. This is a chart from their report. It shows some projects actually will save money, some projects will cost money, but if we only do projects that cost $50 a ton, we will uh, achieve all of our greenhouse gas reduction targets. Well, how much does it cost to, uh, per ton of greenhouse gas abated to have a hybrid electric bus? $1,100 to $1,200 per ton. So if we did that and we tried to reduce, uh, meet our Kyoto targets or whatever targets you want to meet, uh, at $1,100 to $1,100 a ton, we'd essentially be putting ourselves back to the Stone Age because we would not be able to afford it. We spend all of our GDP just on reducing greenhouse gases and then some. We hear about crumbling highways. Uh, I've told you about crumbling transit infrastructure, but crumbling highways are supposed to be a problem, but in fact they're not. The number of structurally deficient bridges has been steadily declining. It's declined by more than 50% since 1990. The average smoothness of average roughness of pavement is declining, which means the average smoothness is increasing. Notice that the smoothest pavement tends to be state-owned highways, and the roughest pavement tends to be local roads. The same is true with bridges. Local, about 15% of local bridges are uh, structurally deficient, but only about 5% of state-owned bridges are structurally deficient. The difference is state-owned bridges are paid for and highways are paid for out of user fees. Local bridges are often paid for out of sales taxes, property taxes, and other taxes. User fees are the key. If, you, if, if infrastructure is funded out of user fees, it'll be well-maintained. If it's funded out of tax dollars, the incentives will be to build new stuff without building existing, without maintaining what you've got. So tolls, fares, whatever, user fees are what we should use to, to uh, uh, fund our infrastructure. So we, we support a return to user fees. We think that funds like the New Starts Fund should be converted to formula funds instead of discretionary funds because discretionary funds are too political. 
Those formulas should make user fees a part of the formula. In other words, the user fees that state and local governments collect should determine how much federal money they get. If they collect more user fees, that means they're pleasing more users. So they should get more federal money. And uh, we should have, a, I think we should have fewer formula funds, but that's not a major issue here. Uh, we have a paper on this subject that has all the data I've just reported to you that will be out in a few weeks. It's called Rails and Reauthorization. I hope you'll take a look at it when it comes out. Right. So first of all, I want to thank you all for being here today, taking some time out of your busy schedules and having a little lunch to listen to this presentation on federal reauthorization and our policies and program recommendations. I want to thank Randall for giving an excellent overview of what's going on, uh, some always useful information on transit. Uh, the, what I did is I came up with four or five policies that I think are realistically changeable in this Congress. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and explain the policy, give a reason why I think it should be changed, and I think these are things that we can actually accomplish. Uh, there's a lot of things that I'd like to get done, but unfortunately, the way Congress works, um, many of them are probably not going to happen. But I think um, these four or five changes can really make a substantial difference. So figure out how to use the clicker. So okay, so talking about the policy changes in the upcoming bill, four significant changes. The basic idea is removing federal government restrictions in rules wherever possible. So oftentimes senators and representatives will get an idea, they have a certain project they like or a certain project they don't like, and they're like, ooh, let's put in a rule to incentivize this, let's put in a rule to prevent someone from doing this. And what we're basically saying is if we can just get the federal government out of the way in these policies, we can actually have states take the lead and we can actually get a much better users pay, user benefit surface transportation system. It's really a way for states to empower themselves. So I'm going to talk a little bit about express toll lanes and hot lanes and interstate tolling, public-private partnerships, and more important to th than that, the tools that we need to actually make public-private partnerships more popular, and mileage-based user fees as a funding source. So I want to first start with express toll lanes. Express toll lanes is pricing of new or existing lanes. These are things such as high occupancy toll lanes, express toll lanes. They go by a number of names. Often they actually have a variable pricing as well. They evolved out of these high occupancy vehicle lanes, which first started in the 70s, which were sort of a response to the oil crisis and an idea, oh, let's get people to carpool together. That will be wonderful. The problem is people tend to actually not like carpooling so much. A lot of times it's actually more of a fam pool where it's a parent and their children or people going from one household to another. So it really doesn't accomplish much of anything in terms of reducing congestion. And hub lanes often have what I call this Goldilocks theory, which is they're either too hot or too cold. They're too hot and that there's too much traffic in them. So they slow down and they're not going any faster than the general purpose lanes or they're too cold and nobody's using them, and then you're complaining, you're, you're sitting in traffic, and you're like, why do we have this lane if nobody's using it? So the express toll lanes are designed to operate at 45 miles per hour or more seven days a week, and they often have variable tolling based on congestions. 
The advantage to this in terms of working across the political aisle and dynamics here is that most express toll lanes offer free passage to express buses, which as we've talked about, buses are much cheaper than rail. They are the way to sort of get at this transit situation. And so they allow regions to create comprehensive bus networks, which I may say in many cases can be competitive bid out to the private, so private uh, companies and you can save some substantial amounts of money when you do that. Um, it's just amazing. Often public entities are not really specialists at knowing how to opera, operate efficient bus service. Uh, they have some other priorities. So the recommended policy change here is that currently, according to FTA and according to the definitions of they and what Congress has given them, hot lanes that are newly constructed are treated differently than hot lanes that are converted from hub lanes. So if you're on a freeway and you've got a high occupancy vehicle lane that your DOT converts to a hot lane, that's treated one way. If the DOT chooses to build a new hot lane, that's treated a different way. This is ridiculous because they do the exact same thing. And so my first recommendation is that we count both new and existing express toll lanes the same way as fixed guideway miles, which is what they are when you have bus service in them. Okay, I wanna briefly talk about interstate highway modernization. The interstate system, 2.5% of the nation's lane miles, 25% of all the vehicle miles of travel. It's reached its 50-year design life. Um, there's 100-plus interchanges with major bottlenecks. 200 corridors need widening. If you're, you're out in your communities, uh, especially if you've got a major metro area, you probably know this. Um, we, have a we have a basically concept at Reason that we call Interstate 2.0, which we consider to be the best funding method. It's users pay, users benefit. Um, what we're doing is we're taking all electronic tolling, so not your grandfather's tolling with these toll booths and these toll booth collectors. Um, it's basically a feasible solution for 95% of the corridors. And when I say 95%, I mean there might be an issue in one road in Montana, but generally it works throughout most of the country. Um, the tolling advantages are 100% of the funding is spent on the, on the corridor. There's no diversions. We don't have this 30% diversion to transit like we have now with the fuel taxes. We don't have uh, any funding of uh, non-invasive non weeds, one of my favorites, um, and it's a good proxy to usage. <coughs> so the recommended change here is under current policy, tolling is banned on the interstate system with basically a few exceptions. Those exceptions are grandfather toll routes like in the Northeast, um, I, parts of I-95, uh, parts of I-80, um, except for a three-state corridor pilot program, which is Virginia, North Carolina, and Ohio, or uh, Missouri, excuse me. The problem is none of those three states have used them, but they're taking up all of the slots in the program. So my recommendation is that we should open this up to all of the interstates if the state wants. It's the state DOT's choice. The state owns the interstates. These are not federally owned highways. These are state owned highways. And so my question is, why is the federal government telling the states how to operate their highways? All right, a little bit about public-private partnerships. There are contractual agreements between a public entity and a private entity. Uh, I believe we're up to 34 states now with enabling P3 legislation. M the most famous of those states are going to be Florida, Texas, and Virginia. A lot of that has to do with early enabling legislation, with growth, and with uh, political attitudes. The advantages, just quickly, the transferring of risk from the public sector to the private sector, delivering needed additional infrastructure, raises capital for toll projects, 
uh, provides a business-like approach. And what I mean by that is oftentimes state toll roads have certain, certain incentives, shall we say, and the incentives are not exactly the quality of um, the road or making sure your ride is as smooth as possible. Um, but when you bring in sort of a business incentive and the private sector has the correct incentive to make money, it is just amazing how things change. They also enable major innovations. Uh, one of those was on the I-495 Capitol Beltway. Um, the private sector was able to put in the express toll lanes in Virginia for about half the cost as the public sector because they figured out they didn't need all of the right of way. And so they're not perfect for every project, but where they work, they're a good solution. Um, my focus on P3s here, though, is really more the enabling tools. In order to have a P3, you need certain loans, certain programs. One of them is TIFIA, the Transportation Infrastructure Finance and Innovation Act. The other one is private activity bonds. And so basically, these are federal credit in the term of TIFIA. In the terms of PABs, they're private bonds with tax-exempt status. So you sort of level the playing field between the public sector and the private sector. And they really do an excellent job of increasing private sector investment. The newest potential tool I just want to mention, and I am not offering a approval of this. I don't know what's going to happen. It is these qualified public infrastructure bonds. We know they're going to get introduced here at some point in time. They could provide another financing tool for the highways. Um, there's supposedly no expiration date and no issuance caps. I like the idea. Um, we'll just see what the, actual, what the actual results are of the program before I really want to say whether this is something we want to do or not. Um, so my, my changes, recommended changes here are raising the amount of funding for TIFIA. Currently, the cap is $1 billion. I'm suggesting that that cap should go up to at least $2.5 billion. I'd like to get rid of it entirely, but I don't know that's realistic. Um, currently, PABs have a $25 billion cap, which sounds like a lot, but it's for the life, and that's permanent. So that's really not that much. So I'm recommending eliminating that cap entirely. And I'm also recommending keeping the keeping restrictions on PABs and TIFIA to a minimum or preferably none. Some of you may be familiar, last Congress, Senator Bingaman, or I shouldn't say last Congress, last authorization, had a rather interesting view of private activity bonds. He thought they should be used for transit, but not for highways. Um, and we, uh, we met with him, and I never was able to get a satisfactory explanation as to that. Um, so in other words, we don't want Congress or the administration to put any restrictions on them. All right, and the last thing I want to talk about is mileage-based user fees, uh, a new, system, new funding system that charges rate based on the mile travel. Um, and the, you have the availability, the ability to vary the fee based on the congestion level and the type of roadway. Now, we've heard a lot about the gas taxes dying. I'm not going to tell you the gas tax is dead tomorrow, but it's going to be dead in 10 to 15 years. And we need to start figuring out a user's pay, user's benefit replacement. There have been some proposals but all of them, other than the mileage-based user fees, seem to violate the user pay, user benefit principle, which means they're not real efficient, at least in my eyes. So the gas tax is losing purchasing power. We've mentioned the diversions already, 30% diverted to really nonsense. You could even argue that 20% of 20% more goes to local roads. And the question is, should the federal government be, be funding local roads? Maybe local and state government should be. Um, and of course, the user pay, user benefit. Um, several states are examining these pilots, uh, California, Florida, Nevada, Oregon, Texas, and Washington, and possibly one or two I've missed, uh, but I think those are the main ones. Oregon has a new permanent program, 
5,000 members that actually starts July 1st. There's a variety of different options in the Oregon program in terms of whether you pay, whether you have a transponder, so to speak, um, that checks for the mileage, or whether it's a simple odometer reading. I don't want to get into that here because of time, but anyway, there's, there's options to make this a little more palatable. Um, and what I would say is we basically need these state and multi-state trials to see if MBUFs are realistic. If you like the concept of mileage-based user fees, you should like a trial because then you will see whether they're actually something that can work on a nationwide, on a, on a statewide basis or region-wide basis. If you don't like the concept of mileage-based user fees, you should really like a trial because then it will prove that they don't work. So regardless of what's your position on this, I think there's a lot of advantages to these trials. So again, my recommended policy is in the last um, bill, there was actually a provision that prevented any study of mileage-based user fees. How much um, money we really want the federal government to spend on research is a good question, but if they're going to fund it, I would actually like them to study mileage-based user fees instead of high-speed rail between a town of 300,000 and 500,000. I think that's a better use of funding. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you, Peter, and uh, thank you, Baruch and Randall. Um, before I get to my presentation, I'll just explain what these photos are. The photo on the left, and this will all make sense, I think. I, I think. Um, that's Ralph Nader in the late 70s, supposedly demonstrating the safety of airbags on children. And then on the right is Google's latest prototype, this low-speed vehicle, fully um, automated vehicle uh, that they're uh, planning on testing out in California. Whoops. What am I doing around here? Yeah, wait, no, that's backwards. Let's go this way. Wait. Okay, so Randall and Baruch have solved all the problems. They laid it out for you. So what's left for D, uh, US DOT after all of these uh, nasty funding issues are dealt with? Um, I think the big elephant in the room is NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, and there is talk right now among some members of Congress of introducing a comprehensive safety title to the reauthorization. Um, I don't think uh, any of the members have got what I think they need to get, but I'll talk about that. Um, so one problem I see with NHTSA, at least today, is that we're essentially relying on this 50-year-old Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard framework uh, that governs, uh, you know, a pretty detailed design specifications for newly manufactured automobiles. The assumption underlying all this, and this goes back to Ralph Nader's famous book, uh, Unsafe at Any Speed, um, uh, which really spurred the development and the creation of NHTSA, but the assumption back then was that these unsafe and defective automobiles were killing people left and right. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll note right here that one of the first reports NHTSA put out was a thorough debunking of uh, Ralph Nader's claims about the Chevy Corvair. Um, but the reality is, is that about 93% of crashes involve a human error crash factor. So. A little bit more on, uh, on NHTSA. Here, is, uh, here are uh, trends, uh, recall trends over the years since, uh, since uh, we've had the FMVSS system. 
Um, this big one here, this is still the largest recall in history. This involved uh, really bogus claims made during the Carter administration about Ford vehicles um, slipping, accidentally slipping into reverse. Uh, after fighting for a few years, Ford eventually settled with NHTSA and they mailed out 21 million stickers to people telling them to uh, engage their parking brake uh, when they're idling. Um, now, 2014 was a really bad year for the, uh, for the automobile industry. Um, this set a record. We had 63 million uh, recalled vehicles. Uh, 16 million of those were the uh, GM ignition, faulty ignition switch, uh, and over 20 uh, million were the Takata airbags. Now, it's important to remember that as bad as, as, as these recalls were, in terms of additional deaths that we saw on the roads, we're probably looking at deaths and injuries. For both of these things, we were probably looking at about four hundredths of one percent increase in annual highway fatalities and injury due to these things. So again, back to that 93 percent, people are, tend to be bad drivers, uh, and that tends to result in deaths and injuries. But two things you can see from these trends. Um, so in recent years, the past 10, 15 years, NHTSA has in fact increased safety scrutiny, uh, and this has occurred while onboard technology has increased. Now, most of these recalls in recent years uh, don't have to do with the traditional engine and powertrain issues that we saw in the past. These are electrical things, uh, vehicle speed control, airbags, and service brakes. Um, so it's techie stuff that we're now running into problems with. Now, so NHTSA has always had this technology focus. This has always been the federal traffic safety focus, technology, technology, technology. It's the faulty, unsafe technology. Now, when we're entering an era when technology takes over for human beings, will NHTSA finally serve a purpose uh, or a, a, a beneficial purpose? Maybe. But um, I worry that NHTSA, just its agency culture and the way that it gets things done, is going to be overcautious. So we're going to see this new um, these new uh, automated vehicle technologies become available. NHTSA is either going to be too slow or they're going to select the wrong standard, uh, and then we're also still stuck with these existing federal motor vehicle safety standards. And I'll give you an example of a problematic uh, uh, safety standard. So this is standard 108. It's the uh, uh, electric lighting and reflection standard. Uh, and if you look in there, if you look at the emergency flasher definition, you'll note that it references a 1966 Society of Automobile uh, Engineers uh, standard. And what does that standard say? Well, it appears to prohibit automatic operation of the emergency flashers due to this language of driver-controlled device. And this was pointed out by University of South Carolina law professor Bryant Walker Smith in a paper, paper a couple years ago. And this, but this isn't some sort of you know academic exercise. In fact, uh, on at least three occasions, NHTSA's chief counsel has determined that automatic operation of these emergency flashers is prohibited. Uh, and you can look that up. Uh, it's in the NHTSA database online. So what does this mean? This is completely unworkable in an automated world, especially if you have a mixed fleet where you need to have emergency flashers available to people who are driving manually driven vehicles. Uh, you, want to, you want to have a vehicle, an automated vehicle, be able to automatically engage these flashers. Uh, it's, a, it's a major safety issue. The second, so that was sort of the tip of the iceberg. The second, and I think this is a bigger problem, there just isn't that much uh, uh, solid evidence right now on this, and that's the underlying benefit cost analyses of these rules. So I want to think uh, you to think for a second. So if these current um, safety standard uh, benefit cost analyses purport to produce some benefit that exceeds some costs, 
what happens when that assumed crash risk that this rule is addressing, what happens when that falls dramatically or disappears in an automated world? Well, the answer is it's all pain, no gain. We're stuck with this rule that addresses a problem that doesn't exist or, uh, or exists in a much smaller degree, um, and automated vehicle developers are still forced to engineer their vehicles around these outdated, obsolete federal motor vehicle safety standards. Um, there's a couple of recent developments uh, I think you should be aware of. The first, uh, and many of you are probably aware of this, but in um, August of last year, NHTSA issued its vehicle-to-vehicle um, -vehicle communications advance notice of proposed rulemaking. Uh, V2V, as NHTSA envisions it, this is to provide advanced collision warnings. So not, there's no intervention here. But um, a major problem with the AMPRM as they, uh, as they released it is that out of dozens of questions, I think they asked 50 or 60-some questions, only one asked anything about how a V2V a v mandate, at least as NHTSA envisions it, which is these collision avoidance alerts, uh, would interface with automated vehicles, which are capable of providing collision avoidance interventions. So the question here is, what benefit is an audible or visual alert to the operator of a vehicle when that operator has, uh, uh, has no responsibility or perhaps not even an ability to regain immediate manual control to take evasive action? The answer is not much. Um, and uh, Booker Fisher, um, Senators Booker and Fisher sent this letter last week to NHTSA and they asked four questions on automated vehicles. Basically, NHTSA, what's going on? Where are you guys? How do you think the existing federal motor vehicle safety standards um, will, uh, you know, basically, how are these going to impact automated vehicle development? We await NHTSA's, um, NHTSA's answers, uh, but these are the important questions that I think Congress should be asking now. Uh, I'm going to close with a couple of recommendations on, on this uh, issue. Um, the first is I think uh, you need to pay attention and really resist this narrow V to V mandate. There's other issues floating around that relate to this um, uh, uh, spectrum allocation. There's a battle going on at the FCC over that that could impact this. NHTSA really has not thought this through, and it really has the potential of a negative impact on automated vehicle development. Um, the next thing I think we should do, uh, that I think Congress should do, is to have uh, to have, uh, produce audit reports, so whether this is GAO or uh, CRS or NHTSA itself, on the existing Federal Motor Vehicle sa uh, Safety Standard Framework and the, this uh, potential for uh, benefit uh, cost uh, collapse. Uh, I think we really need to start looking at this. I don't think we need a ton of, uh, a ton of intervention from Congress, but these are two things that would be good. Um, like I said, I don't think we need uh, intervention from Congress in a lot of these areas. Uh, I don't think we need more research funding for vehicle development. Uh, the private uh, sector is doing a great job on that. Uh, Google and then all the, basically all the traditional uh, OEMs and tier one suppliers are actively engaged in technology development. Um, so I don't think we're, uh, we need Congress to boost any funding for those vehicles. Um, Congress should also pay attention to what's going on in the states. California poses a really big problem. It's a big economy. Uh, they have a lot of vehicles there, uh, and they were the f one of the first states back in 2012 to pass an autonomous vehicle uh, authorizing legislation. Now, the problem, what's going on right now, is that California DMV has interpreted that statute uh, to basically forbid, uh, or rather, it, it requires that a licensed driver be in the driver's seat at all times during operation and have the ability to retake manual control. The problem with that, and going back to the Google pod car back there, is that Google has been forced to re-engineer 
engineer a steering wheel into their vehicle uh, in order to meet these new testing regulations in California. Google and other developers are currently battling the DMV in California over uh, the operations and licensing rules that have yet to come out, but uh, this is potentially a big problem, potentially uh, in the future a role for Congress to preempt. Um, but really the biggest thing I think Congress needs to do is don't leave NHTSA unattended. Uh, we need a lot of oversight here. We, uh, based on what they're doing with V2V uh, and based on what they've said, uh, sort of cagey statements on uh, automation, we need to be very, very careful uh, that NHTSA doesn't screw this up uh, uh, because this is, a, this is a great technology. Safety benefits, mobility benefits, um, it would be a shame if, if regulators mess it up. So with that, I look forward to any questions and thank you very much. Um, all right, I want to entertain uh, as many questions as we can, so make sure you state your uh, question in the form of a question and uh, not with a soliloquy. So, uh, Nick, why don't you go first? Uh, yes, thank you. I want to ask, and this is touching off what Mr. O'Toole said and Mr. Feigenbaum, I was thinking of concern with transit. He mentioned that we've got, new, we've got existing projects that need maintenance, but uh, we're, we're spending money on new projects instead. I want to ask in the instance of, so we, you're talking about bonds and public-private partnerships and new ways to bring capital to infrastructure, how do we prevent there from being a similar situation where, where the new, new projects get up, get the bonds and the P, P3s because they're sexy, politicians want to do them. How do we make sure that, 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 we're, that we're not neglecting our existing infrastructure at the expense of new infrastructure? Well, I would, I would say to that that in most cases, the P3s are for the highways, which are, at least in my view, which are generally well-maintained, at least the state-level roads. I think some sort of provision that says your roads, you know, a certain percentage of them have to be in acceptable or better pavement condition would be okay. Most state DOTs, as Randall pointed out, the higher-level roads are actually very well-maintained because it's a priority of the state DOT. So I know one thing with the Purple Line to Maryland is they're looking at using a P3, and I don't, so a P3 could make a transit project better, but if a transit project is bad, you still shouldn't be doing the project just to enter into a P3. So I guess in the case of transit, it would be, there would be very few projects, I'm trying to think of one right now and I can't, there would be very few projects where a P3 would tip it into the acceptable range, at least in my opinion. I'd just like to say there's two kinds of P3 projects. One is called a demand risk project, where the private party puts up the money and then they collect tolls or fares or something like that, and they take the risk that they're not going to collect enough. If they lose money, that's, that's their risk, that's their loss. The other kind is availability payments. Almost all highway projects are demand risk. Almost all transit projects, all transit projects, are availability payments. That's where the government the private party puts up the money, and the government promises to pay the private party an annual amount. It's not couched as repaying a loan. It's couched as, we're just going to pay you an annual amount, whether or not anybody uses the project at all. So there's no risk for the private party. So what does this do for maintenance? If you are a demand risk P3 provider, you want to have users use your project in order to bring in money to repay whatever you put up to, to uh, finance the project. 
So you have to keep the project well maintained, otherwise you're going you're to lose those users and you lose that revenue. If you are an availability payments P3 project provider, then you don't care whether anybody uses the project because the government has pro promised to keep you reimbursed even if there's no users. So then you're going to neglect the maintenance. So if you have a demand risk project, I think the maintenance will take care of itself. If you have an availability payments project, and I wish they had more dynamic terms than these boring terms, but those are the terms they use now. Uh, if you have an availability payments project, maintenance is going to be just as bad of an issue. Uh, you want to go? Um, Mark Carr with the, um, I do a couple of different things in freight policy, but my uh, remarks or my question is about my role at the Transportation Research Board. You talked about research in a couple of contexts. Um, the uh, highway bills have given money to the states uh, and then via the AASHTO vehicle, the money flowed back to TRB. In your opinion, is that an acceptable uh, use of the, the research TRB then you know, engages volunteers for the most part, there are some paid people. But is, is that an acceptable way to go or is there, a, uh, is there another mechanism that can fund that? Because that's been a problem the last couple years and we in TRB see that as a problem going forward. Who's that directed to? Um, Anyone? Whoever uh, wants to answer? Brooks on a committee at TRB. All right, so yeah, Mark, I mean, I, I research is tricky, okay, because we need research. But at the same point in time, you know, some of the research out there, I guess, there's some questions as to whether, you know, how valuable it is and, and whatnot. I, I, I would like a better process than we have today. I'm not sure I can come up with one um, to the extent that we were able to actually incentivize the private sector to do better research where there wasn't a conflict of interest and there could be some more partnerships between TRB. I mean, I know, you know, they go to, you know, you go with AASHTO and the state DOTs, and then they hire consulting firms and they do it. But the question is, are the consulting firms just doing, you know, what DOT wants them to? I mean, I think in most cases, the research is usually pretty high quality. But um, there does seem a good bit out there that I just question whether there's really any use for. So I don't, I don't have a solution to say this method is not great. I would like a better method. I have not come up with what that method is. Okay, I think you were next. Um, this is kind of a broad question for any of you guys, but considering user fees, actually I have two questions. If that's okay. The first one is, what's the interplay between a user fee system and transportation system that promotes commerce, be it people or goods, interstate, local. I'm just kind of wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And your second question? My second question is, um, also on user fees, hold on. Oh, uh, how, does, how does user fees kind of interplay with public transit? Does the idea of a user fee-based system kind of assume that there won't be as, as healthy a growth of public transit that other um, other other groups have predicted. Well, I I can answer give give you my answer to both yeah. questions. Uh, as far as user fees and commerce, uh, when we built the interstate highway system, I think we were very lucky. But Congress decided to fund the system exclusively out of user fees and to have no bonding. In other words, we weren't going to fund it out of future user fees that might come in. We were going to fund it only as the money comes in, pay as you go. And as a result, we got a pretty good system. Uh, as, as I think Baruch mentioned, it, it is 22.5% of our lane miles and carries 25% of all of our traffic. 
So are you um, saying the user fee and the gas tax are the same then? Well, I think the gas tax is a user fee if the money goes to, to the use. That, okay. you know, if, if in Texas, 25% of gas taxes go to education, then that 25% is not a user fee. But the 75% that goes to highways is a user fee. It's not a perfect user fee. I like tolls. I like mileage-based user fees better. But it's still a user fee, even if it's, it's imperfect. But we have this great interstate highway system, and it generated enormous commerce, far more than anybody expected. You know, nobody would think that I-90 out of South Dakota or I-80 in Wyoming would have a lot of traffic, and yet they have enormous amounts of truck traffic. Uh, and that commerce, is, is, it's made transportation faster, cheaper, uh, safer, uh, improved it in many ways. And there's an assumption I see out there on the part of many researchers and activists that any dollar we spend on transportation at all, whether it's an interstate highway or a streetcar, is going to produce the same benefits for commerce. Well, that's just absurd. You know, the 8th Street streetcar is not providing anybody any benefits except for the people who actually built it, who made some money building it. Uh, it is uh, destructive beyond that. It is increasing congestion, it's increasing collisions. Uh, all kinds of problems, and uh, you're not going to get the same kind of benefit. So you, the difference is that the A Street streetcar is funded entirely out of non-user fees. It's entirely out of tax dollars, and they expect to collect some user fees to cover maybe 25% of the operating costs, but none of the capital, none of the maintenance costs. So a good test of whether an infrastructure project is going to provide commercial benefits whether that project is funded out of user fees. Maybe I need to direct my question a little bit. I'm thinking of a trucker. Right now, he pays diesel fuel tax, mm -hmm. and that money goes in the trust fund and it's distributed. We're looking at a mileage-based system where then that trucker would probably be expected to pay proportionally a larger amount than, say, you know, a, maybe a larger amount than his current legal system employed. Which is true. Um, which is why uh, some of the trucking groups are not great fans of the mileage-based user fee system. I guess I would say that if you look at the way that trucks um, wear out roads compares to cars, it's, you know, at least 10 times, maybe a logarithmic factor. So, I mean, they should be paying more. I'm not saying they should be paying 10 times more. So we need to come up with some sort of, I mean, obviously there's commerce benefits. We need to come up with some sort of reasonable solution there. But, yeah, I mean, a trucker should be paying, and, you know, the gas tax has sort of done that based on fuel efficiency, but now with electric cars and with even, you know, great improvements in the truck fleet, it's, you know, not what it once was. Let me try to take a stab at this transit um, question. Oh, boy. So, you know, our reasons, and I, I, I think everyone up here's philosophy, is that you, you, you've got a principle of federalism. So you've got some programs that are national in scope and some programs that are local or state in scope. So highways... I should say, interstate system and major arterial highways, aviation, uh, railroads, freight railroads, those uh, ports and marine ports to a certain extent, those are what I would say are federal programs. There is some, there is some role, certainly not the role we have right now and not as many programs as we have right now, but there is some role for Washington in those programs. When you get to transit and non-motorized transportation, in my view, there is no role for Washington. Nobody is crossing state borders. There's no interstate commerce on a bike. Now, I'm not saying that those programs are not important, that you wouldn't fund them at a state or local level, and I think depending on, on them, you can make a case for that. There is, right now, 
with the exception of maybe a place like New York, where I think they actually could, if they charge the right prices for transit, which they don't, get a system that pays itself. It's very hard for transit system, for bus systems to pay for themselves. This is reality. But, you know, private contracting and other things can make them a lot better. But the decision of how to make that funding gap up is a state and local decision because they're state and local services. It's not a federal decision. I don't think the federal government should be in the business of transit or non-motorized transportation. Uh, before Mark speaks, I want to interject. I have a paper on privatizing transit. I think bus transit could pay for itself uh, in almost every city in the country. And in fact, there are several cities in which there are private transit operations competing with the public operators, charging the same or sometimes even lower fares and providing as good or better service as the private as the public operators. And uh, so I don't, I don't see any problem with expecting a transit to pay for itself. The problem is you have bureaucracies. Bureaucracies take whatever revenue they can get. And if you say, we're going to give you 75% of the costs you spend and then expect, expect you to perform and get more revenues than 25% of the revenues, you're just going to uh, uh, be engaged in wishful thinking. They're going to spend 25, 70, that 75%. Oh, did you want to? Yeah, just just quickly um, on the on the sort of the economic benefits question and user pays. Um, I agree with everything uh, Brooke and Randall said. I would just note that even though you know this is an argument often made by folks to say to try to get out of paying uh, for their use, but um, it's 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 true that the majority of benefits of using the transportation system accrue to the users. So yes, we have these benefits of having enhanced network access, but it's still the case that the benefits. Are, are largely flowing to the direct users of the system. And then on transit, there's an interesting, uh, uh, Pew Charitable Trust put out a paper last year and they looked at, they looked at um, well, where's, where's the money going on um, federal, state, and local? Um, about 20% of surface transportation funds at the federal level are going to transit, about 20 at the states, and then it's 40 at the locals. I think actually, I mean, there are a lot of problems at the federal level with the federal government's involvement in, in transit, but a lot of the problems uh, are, are at the locals or with the transit agencies there. And I think a lot of it has to do with the incentives that, that Randall talked about, uh, but there's a, an incredible amount of waste happening at the local level. I think we got time for one last one. You there, yeah. The pro and so, but you talk, so we say get them out, okay? The problem, I think, is that TIPIA and PATHS are basically federal expenditures compared to what they would be in a private sector. So if the government, if, they, if, we, if we're going to take FTA out of the permitting for the FFG, the fully funded grants stuff, um, because there's some efficiency in letting the state and locals who know their communities better build these transit projects, right, the, the federal government is still going to hold on to its dominion over the PATS and the TIPIA stuff. So what do we do on that if we're, if we're reliant upon some federal tax advantages in the P3 space? Sure. So uh, again, I would when I was talking about TIPIA and PATS, I was thinking mainly of highways. Mm -hmm. um, is there a transit program? Is there a transit project that makes set you know that didn't make sense without Tiffy and Pabs that does make sense with it? Potentially, 
maybe that's a special situation that we look at. But in generally, I'm not thinking the Tiffy and PABs, again, for because they're going to be rail projects in most cases. If they're bus projects, then there's some coordinating role. That's fine. If they're rail projects, I guess I'm still skeptical that they would make any sense that the federal, so that the federal government would get involved with Tiffy and PABs because it still wouldn't be a good project. And with that, our time has come to a close. So I want to thank you again all for coming today. I appreciate it. Let's give a round to our speakers.